podcast, Alan Colpit talks about future of performance management in the future of work. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us Alan Colquitt. Uh, Alan is a talent management, organizational change and human capital analytics expert. He has worked as an internal consultant in the pharmaceutical and consumer product industries, building organizational capabilities, advising executives, business leaders and HR professionals. He is frequently sought out by private and public companies, consulting organizations, professional organizations and academic institutions as an expert advisor. He is a frequent speaker, presenter at professional meetings and conferences on a wide variety of talent management and human capital analytics topics. His thinking and research appeared in many books, uh, chapters, articles, blog posts, magazines, and white papers. Alan is a licensed psychologist in the state of Indiana. With that, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great. Great to be here. Interesting. I think one of the very... um, uh, fascinating thing that I found about your profile is uh, obviously you have a background in performance management and then performance management and you have um, a psychologist degree so why don't you walk us through through your journey like what brought you to to this area of uh, motivational control management and and what's 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 your background yeah, it's an and to me it's unexpected if you ask me 30 years ago where, where do you think you'll be spending your time uh, you know when you're when you're uh, later in your career, it probably would not have been where I'm at. So it's uh, to me, it's it's kind of fascinating. So um, yeah, again, as you said, trained as a as a psychologist, individual differences. Mm. Uh, I was trained in a psychology department, not in a business school. So my focus, you know, truly uh, is in individual differences, psychology, psychological thinking applied to the organization and the workplace. Um, so. I spent five years at P&G um, early on in my career, mostly focused on designing uh, employee, um, you know, hiring and selection systems, development systems, um, some work on organizational design and consulting um, toward the end of that time period. And then uh, 27 years at, at uh, Eli Lilly Company, a pharmaceutical company uh, located in the, in the Midwest. Um, Eli Lilly is mostly an ethical pharmaceutical company, um, purely um, prescription-based medicines, uh, very uh, integrated, uh, single kind of company, um, not diversified like most pharma companies are today, pure um, ethical uh, prescription-based pharmaceutical play for the most part, also uh, animal health. There, I mean, I, I've done the gamut. I've run the gamut of kind of focusing on very individual um, system uh, design, like hiring systems and leadership identification systems, um, assessment systems uh, for administrative decisions and also for things like development. Also more team design work, team development work, leadership teams, work teams, self-managed teams, um, assessing them, diagnosing them, design them. And then also, and also um, um, alliances and partnerships, which are critical in the pharmaceutical business. A lot of work um, designing, you know, systems for assessing them, partnering with them, diagnosing them, and, and intervening to make those partnerships more effective. Um, and then finally, um, a, a fair amount of work at the organizational level as well, doing um, what you know what I would call strategy implementation work, uh, not necessarily formulation work, but um, strategy implementation, organization design, organization capability. Uh, assessment, diagnosis, um, 
And then, uh, you know, about seven or eight years ago, um, through some re HR reorganization, I took responsibility for performance management, which turned out to be, um, you know, an interesting choice because I've gotten very, very deep into it. So I, I began, own I took ownership of it. I inherited it, inherited, had a, a head count with it. And so I had done, I had studied performance management my entire career, studied it, main, you know, um, maintained these systems, um, fixed these systems, worked on it, but I've never owned them. When I took ownership for it about uh, seven years ago, uh, I immediately started getting all the hate mail and all the phone calls. And uh, um, so that le led me down this kind of journey to, to deep study and deep understanding of the science behind performance management and understanding all the forces that are driving it and um, the practices and the effectiveness of them and so on. So this is what kind of propelled me down the path of, of um, working to redesign performance management as a company uh, I worked in as all, also, also to kind of write, you know, write about it, uh, write about what I've learned in, uh, in the book I wrote published last year. Uh, and then to now, now be more, in a, since I retired from Lilly at the end of uh, last year, now to much more, I'm much more kind of an evangelist, kind of you know tr trying to, to spread the word um, uh, in, in this area, and you know doing some consulting and advising as well, but also writing um, and uh, you know things things to kind of promote the the ideas that that I've got. So since I retired, I'm all so a little consult in the my current role is really part-time consultant, part-time teacher, you know, uh, faculty, professor. Um, I signed on with an HR think tank. Um, some of your um, listeners, and you may be familiar with uh, Ed Lawler and John Boudreau, they, the members of the Center for Effective Organizations at USC, University of Southern California in uh, Los Angeles. Signed on as a, an affiliate research scientist with them. So I, I'm kind of playing in a number of different sandboxes over the uh, over the past six to eight months, but uh, um, performance management kind of evangelist um, uh, is a primary one. Interesting. Uh, thank you for walking us through through your, sure. through your background. So, tell us tell us more about your 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 academic side. Like, what do you do um, on 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 the academic front nowadays? Yeah. Well, mostly on the uh, on the academic side, it's purely teaching. I, I taught. Uh, I've taught MBA in the MBA program at um, uh, the Kelly School of Business at, at, at IUPUI, which is an Indiana University, Purdue University satellite Indian campus in Indianapolis. Um, so traditional org behavior uh, for MBA students. Um, uh, and then also at uh, Butler University, another local kind of a local, smaller local uh, private university here in town, uh, taught organization behavior there. Um, but I have always been kind of an academic thinker, always been very theoretically oriented, interested in theory, uh, interested in theories and frameworks um, as a way of explaining um, and um, understanding practices and which practices are optimal, whether it's for onboarding or for hiring or for development and training or for uh, leadership. So I've always had a one, you know, one eye on the outside looking at science and what's happening in science whether it's in leadership or performance management or rewards and one one eye also on the practice what's happening in practice in organizations so uh, i've always been fairly externally focused whether it's, it's more academic um, 
and what's happening at universities or um, in practice and understanding what's happening in organizations. Interesting. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so uh, again, thank you so much for, for walking us through that. So one of the whenever I, I I hear about performance management, I think one of the interesting thing um, story that 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 comes to my mind is so I was talking to this uh, assistant coach of one of the uh, local team in Boston uh, football team, and um, and sort of and he was talking about hey do you know Vishal why we are what we are I said why he said that our job is to work with each of these individual players understand their background understand their upbringing understand sort of the relationships everything. That we can find information on, and we we sure we give them uh, we give them access to the data today. We give them access to what kind of plays are famous, what kind of um, trends are happening nowadays, what's going on with, with with every other team. But we use their sort of personal information to use them and make them one of the most powerful weapon that works together with uh, collectively other other players to create this this amazing experience to win win this uh, enormous sort of com- competitive matches. And his his worry was that in you in your case in in your typical enterprise world, you guys have don't even have access to this mere data that gets you to perform the way you perform. Like you are very obsolete. You still sort of work on tertiary motives to get compensation and all that uh, to motivate you. What's your thinking? What's your thinking on um, uh, some of the some of the challenges and some of the some of the uh, sort of problem areas when it comes to performance management and how? businesses perceive performance areas to be? Well, I think, um, I mean, I would say, um, I, I, I think one of the, I mean, to me, one of the, the well, for, first of all, I think the, the problem is it's, it's just not, it's just not, it's not working. So part of the question mm-hmm. is, all right, it's not working. What are the, what are the root, kind of the root causes of, of, of this? So, um, I mean, I, I think part of the, uh, you know, the most significant challenges, I think, well, they're, they're really four, you know, failure modes, if you want to call it that, for uh, um, for, for performance management. One, and they, they all, you know, this is the marketing uh, guy in me, which is not very good, obviously. They all start with P. So there's like, you know, mm. practices is the first one. So the practices we are implementing, which is traditional, you know, traditional performance management, everyone does the same. They set objectives at the beginning of the year. They uh, have a review, usually mid-year, and then have a final review, and then we evaluate their performance and assign a rating to them, and that rating drives their rewards. Everyone does it the same way. Mm. There's some marginal differences between companies, but but by and large, everyone does it the same way, and and that's and that's generally not working. Um, those practices are not very effective, and if you doubt that, then you know you've been you've not been reading any of the press. Um, and you know, at the same time, the the um, the rewards practices are not working either. So when you you know when you read any benchmark reports about you know the and rewards practices again are fairly traditional. Um, you have you know merit pay at the end of the year. You know this is an annual cycle. There's a big budget, and our job is to figure out how to divide that budget up, usually efficiently. Um, and we can go a lot deeper into the thinking behind that and 
because remember, this is our chief, our chief strategy for motivation. Okay. And, you know, there's a big pot of money and our job is to figure out how to efficiently uh, distribute it. Efficiency is probably not the lens that you want to use when you think about motivating your best people. When you talk to your foot, the football coach, efficiency isn't in their mind mm. when you talk about how to make the best football team possible. Efficiency isn't one of the key criteria, but it is one of the key criteria in the way we think about motivating uh, uh, motivational systems and organizations because it's mostly money. It's a big pot of it. Mm. We distribute it with merit increases, base pay increases, and we distribute it with bonus um, with uh, variable pay programs. And those aren't working either. Um, we spend on in the U in the U.S. alone estimated three hundred and forty five billion dollars a year in base pay increase, uh, base pay increases and bonus, uh, uh, and bonuses every year. And despite that massive sum of money, when you ask people, are we paying for performance? Are we differentiating performance? The answer is no. People are unhappy with what they get. They're unhappy with, uh, with most of it. So the, the, the practices are not working at all. Uh, and part of the reason the practices aren't working is because the thinking, the upstream assumptions and beliefs on which those practices are based are problematic. Money motivates. These are all classic kind of psychological. You learn these in Psych 101 and you learn these in Econ 101. Uh, you know, financial rewards motivate. People are self-maximizing. Um, uh, the law of effect. If you want to, you know, if you want to control people's behavior, control their consequences. These th the thinking you know behind these theories um, is you know vintage 1920 in some cases and vintage 1950s. It certainly is these these the thinking and the theories behind these practices are are vastly outdated, and it's not surprising the practices are not not effective. So the paradigms behind these practices are not effective uh, either. Um, and when the in the case of performance management, the purpose is a problem as well. You know, performance management does everything for everyone. Uh, if you look at any performance management book, twenty there'll be twenty two to twenty five different purposes. And uh, what if one one process cannot effectively serve that many masters? Mm. Uh, way too many masters, um, conflicting expectations. There's no way this process will be effective. And then finally, there's a whole propaganda problem that um, with you know, lots of focus on benchmarking, um, lots of focus on, uh, on relying heavily on, on HR think tanks and big external consulting firms to guide us here. Uh, and so what happens is everyone has, is, is shifted to the mode. Everyone is focused on modal common practices, not, which are not necessarily effective practices. So, so I think that the, the problems with this process are very broad, lots mm -hmm. of problems, and they're very deep, which is why they're so resistant to, to change. Lots of tinkering. Companies continue to change this process every, every year or every two or three years. And they're always tinkering at the margins, and they're always tinkering in the orbit of the, of the current traditional paradigms. Money motivates pay for performance and contingent rewards motivate. Um, and, you know, that kind of thinking, um, agency, classic kind of agency theory, tournament theory. Um, if you want people to, you know, you need to carrots and sticks. That's what it's really primarily all about.
So the problems are very broad, very deep, um, which is why you haven't seen much change. Interesting. And and if 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 you if you look at um, the current authors, so when uh, or current sort of researchers, when it comes to either Daniel Pink or like all of these guys are writing a lot about hey, motivation is critical. Like understand what motivates people, and it's it's important. And right now, it's not necessarily money. Like it 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 works, but then you see a sort of a decline in the performance. It just does some limited limited sort of things to help. So what what is the result? Like what what's your take that uh, how is that landscape of uh, performance changing when it comes to sort of uh, how businesses could motivate their people and, and sort of have them as, as, a, as a high performance individual? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the uh, you know, and Pink, I think Pink did a good job uh, of laying out the the problem statement. Um, I think there were some things that Pink left out of the book. Uh, we're talking about the book Drive, um, um, published uh, seven or eight years ago now. Mm. Uh, but the idea, I think that he, yeah, the basic idea and the and the research foundation that the great thing about Pink is the research foundation for Drive was pretty strong. Some mm. people will quibble with it. Like many people will quibble with whether money motivates and, and performance-based pay motivates. But, but I think the fundamental idea is that the, the, is that the, the kind of the, the center for motivation for people tra- in traditional thinking is that motiv- motivation is external to somebody, extrinsic mm-hmm. motivation, um, money, um, threats. Uh, this, again, this is classic agency theory. And you know, for the, those of you interested in labor economics, um, and this is a, a, a this is a really a problem theory because a lot of what we do is based on agency theory, mm-hmm. which says you have a principal, which is a company, and an agent, which is an employee. And the you know this is classic in economics is that both are self maximizing, mm-hmm. both are self interested. Mm-hmm. The employee is not going to align with the goals of the company; they have their own goals, and the company is not going to align with the goals of the employee. The assumption is the employee wants to goof off. Mm-hmm. And that in order to get the employee to align, align their goals with the company goals, we have to threaten them or incent them or put teeth into them and monitor and surveillance. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And that it's, that, that it's external pressure motivates people. And I think the fundamental change in the future is that that's not the source of motivational energy for employees. Mm-hmm. The future is more around People are looking for uh, is more around purpose, you know, and and pink call, you know, pur- purpose, mastery, and mm. autonomy. Mm. And the the thing pink left out that is critically important. Um, this is from Desi's uh, Edward Desi's research mm. is belonging. So I think that you know the the uh, the, the big ideas for motivation and control, and I use control in a, you know in a good way. Mm. You know, organizations need they need predictability. And so there have to be control systems set up for what people, what do we work on and what don't we work on? Um, so I think PM is a control system, but in a good way. Um, so I think the center of the universe shifts from motivation is outside to motivation is inside. Um, what we need, you know, we need to, fo- you know, one of the big ideas is, is PM needs to focus more on goals and direction and purpose and meaning mm-hmm. than it does evaluation and differentiation and rewards. 
Um, so a sense of purpose and meaning are critically important for, to motivate people, which is why you find people doing things and volunteering, doing volunteer work, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, whether it's Wikipedia or um, when, you know, when, you know, when the Malaysia air um, disaster happened, there were thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of people sitting on the, at the computer looking at video feeds for debris. And no one was paying them to do any of that. These are people that are just committed to serving a larger purpose and will do this without extra, you know, extrinsic rewards. So real purpose and meaning and, um, uh, and you know, goals and direction in performance management are, are the optimal way to create that. So performance management becomes a purpose and meaning machine rather than an evaluation and differentiation machine, number one. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, you know, talking about the future, this, the future of, of the worker is much more, you know, people are much more interested in purpose and meaning in organizations mm -hmm. now. And I think more progressive organizations and more progressive kind of organizational thinking is more purpose oriented as well. Whether you look at University of Michigan, the positive organizational scholarship ideas, other notions, the work that Aaron Hurst and Arthur Woods are doing uh, with the purpose economy. Mm. Uh, if you look to the future, I think organizations are going that, that way because and employees and people want to see that. They want meaning in their work. And performance management is the vehicle to give them meaning. Um, so I think that's a key part. Belonging is another key part. Um, and that's the piece that, that Pink really missed out on, I think. Um, uh, organization, again, the future of organizations is not individuals. It's not individualistic uh, systems, it's teams. Okay, so um, I think progressive organizations are going to be doing this process, performance management, not at the individual level. This is going to be a, become a team sport. You know, PM is going to be, you know, the, the unit of analysis for PM in the future will be the team because the team is the way work gets done. Uh, teams, uh, the work organizations need to do today is better done by teams, not by mm -hmm. individuals. Um, difficult work, innovation work, where quality matters, um, and there's no right answer. When you look at those kind of filters, teams are the way you do the work. Uh, teams are smarter than individuals at the kind of work that individuals have to do today. So the Center for Motivation Energy, again, shifts away from money and uh, pay for performance, extrinsic rewards, carrots and sticks to purpose and meaning, belonging, um, you know, joining a company or joining a group or belonging to a group where uh, working on meaningful stuff and we all share in and we all are working on something bigger than ourselves. Um, that's where real, real work happens. And then the third piece is really not so much, you know, there's a lot of focus on feedback and performance management. And, mm. and I think the center, the center of that shifts more toward progress. So it's not looking at just getting feedback. It's, it's again, focusing on goals. And what, what really motivates people is progress against goals, not feedback. And so, um, you know, I think a lot, of, a lot of the motivational energy in the future, especially as, as we teach supervisors how to manage people, will be focusing on progress. In your example of, uh, of the football team, coaches working with players saying, you know what? You used to not be able to do that. And now you can do that. You're getting better and you're getting better. Here's how we can help you get better. It's focusing on progress. Um, that's, I think, where well, what will create real motivation and energy in, uh, in the future. 
So I think we're, you know, again, we're spending $345 billion a year. And I think we're getting heroic efforts from people despite what we do to them. Mm. And despite what we're spending on them for motivation, uh, not because of it. And I think in the future, we're going to figure that out. And not that that money is that money. Let's use that money to manage pay and manage comp and keep people up, up with the market. And we need to manage pay, but managing pay is different than motivating employees. So uh, I think that's the future is the more um, deeper and more powerful motives. Interesting. And I think uh, <clears throat> so beautifully said and, and thank you for walking me through, through that. I think one thing that that that, that I've observed um, from my personal experience. So if, if, I, if I take a live example of my family. So my dad worked with the company for his entire life. He just started there and just he's retired from that company. Um, I pretty much has a, I have a churn cycle of about, I think, 780 or 780 years. And if, if I see my new hires, uh, typically young grads or young folks, they are churning at three years, two years. Uh, however, you, so when you have this, this loyalty bandwidth declining, right? So you have uh, workers that are now sort of churning out more than they anticipated to churn. How does it, it impact the performance or uh, the motivation? Like what is now the role of uh, say performance management or motivation control in this, in this era of shortening um, life cycle of an employee you know, within a company? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, you know, um, well, well, I mean, the first thing I, you know, I think, you know, I wonder if, if. Um, you know, is it is there really a loyalty problem? Our our, our employees are mm. our, our, our employees still looking for a long term play, but they are just increasingly disappointed with the long term prospects. Mm. Uh, so you know, I, I truly wonder about that because mm. you know I think we can paint. You know, this is my experience with you know one company and my experience mm. studying employees at that company. But but uh, what we found is you cannot paint with a with a very broad demographic brush, young people, there are young people who are very, still very long-term oriented. Um, so I, I'm not sure that it's, that it's so much that employees and people are different hmm. as much as it is companies are not delivering a value proposition that makes people want to stay around for that long. Um, so I wonder whether the problem isn't people, isn't companies and not people. And are we delivering, mm. creating a value proposition for, um, for employees and future employees that is compelling enough? Mm. And the other point, I mean, the other, so that's, that's one question. The other, the other point is, I mean, you're absolutely right. One to two year period is critical. Most companies, the, the inflection point in, turn, in turnover, the highest rate is in that one to two year mm. period. So basically, if you're a company, you have one to two years to make a case for employees, um, which puts lots of pressure on hiring, lots of pressure on onboarding, lots of pressure on um, communicating a value proposition that is compelling for them to get them to join and delivering on a value proposition early on that is compelling enough to get them to stay. And uh, um 
and I don't I, I don't think companies have the the lens you know I, I think it you know it, you could argue that we that we should focus almost all of our energy early on first you know first eight weeks first 90 days mm -hmm. uh, with with employees and focus heavily on um, recruiting now re the problem with recruiting is it's a sales job so we mm -hmm. oversell and then we don't deliver and so part of this is balanced selling as a recruit uh, when you're recruiting realistic previews of what we're going to get what we're going to deliver to you but then actually very early on getting people engage engaging people very early on in real meaningful work um and delivering on a you know again all these things delivering on purpose and meaning and challenging work and building, you know, a team that they can, you know, feel like they want to belong to, to contribute, you know, really meaningfully in a year or two, which means you don't have a lot of time. You have to deliver on that value proposition quickly. I think many companies, especially big companies, take a long time to get people in, mm. a long time to get people integrated. Most of the early work in getting people into the organization is administrative. Do they have a computer? Do they have an ID? Do they have a badge? And it's all logistics and administration, not thinking about motivation and the opportunity to create purpose and meaning and connection to the company, connection to the customers and the, the larger good that we serve. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think, I think again, I think Aaron Hurst's work and the purpose economy mm -hmm. and, and uh, you can do this in companies where you wouldn't necessarily think that you can do it. Shake Shack, I mean, you know, you can do this in in, comp in large companies where, you know, it's easy to do if you work for a hospital system or where, mm. where the, the purpose is noble to begin with. But I think people can get very excited about, about what companies deliver to customers and other uh, important stakeholders. And we just spend very little time engaging them uh, in those in, in that kind of context. And I think that kind of context in the future will be that will be critical. Uh, because you have to create meaning and purpose. Otherwise, people won't hang around. And I think we're going to see this cycle happen. If you can't create meaning and purpose, a compelling purpose and challenging work that, that engages people, they're, they're going to find someplace else to go. Uh, and the barriers are dropping. I mean, companies are mm. more progressive companies like, you know, Patagonia, Tom's Shoes, um are 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 already you know exploiting that and saying well let's 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 get people excited about what they're doing and why they're doing it interesting and and i think so uh one more thing i was thinking about um in a couple of my previous conversations so i get this sort of too extreme of conversation when i talk to hr executives so one is hey i treat my employees as a building block uh, of taking us into this future that we don't know where but we're excited to go there the other mindset is, hey, um, employees are Kleenex. So we use it, we exhaust it, and then we throw it out, right? So, and then sort of we look for the new sheet now to, to keep 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 my, my table always fresh. What is, as we are heading into this future, like what's, what's your perception of, what is the right mindset or if there is one? Um, so was the second, the question about the, the second option is more, um, you know, uh, hire them and then fire them as they or yes say say more about what you um, uh, about your second scenario the second alternative so so it's basically um, the argument is that um, so I was talking to this this company one of the fortune 500 um, and sort of growing rapidly and, and and they were saying that 
for last uh, two decades their core has been shrinking the core core sort of uh, companies that that pretty much that represents that company so basically their pers- perspective is that employee to many perspective us for us are these kleenex sheets that we just uh-huh. we get we get the freshest batch clean the table looks beautiful and throw it in the garbage and then so then there's a huge discussion of hey so does that mean that it's kleenex job to keep itself fresh after taking care of your whatever or, or do you own a responsibility of cleaning the sheet for the next guy to use or whatever that that argument right so so that's that's the case so which, which one do you think where mm-hmm. we are heading to and, and and what's what's the resolve well i mean i you know i, I think there's I think we're I think we're heading in that direction. The second option now, and, and I don't I think the and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that's the right strategy. That's the appropriate strategy. Um, um, you know, because because I think you know what what's happening is there are fewer traditional building block employees and companies, much more outsourcing, much more contracting, and this is all focused on cost, right? And again, focused on cost, and you go up one level. Focused on shareholders. How can we mm-hmm. create shareholder return? How can we manage our costs, keep costs down? That's pushing jobs outside, pushing jobs offshore, um, uh, pushing towards contractors, and much more uh, to keep variable costs down. Much more flexible um, uh, um, arrangements, so we can. And remember, this only works if you can fire these people. You know, you know, and. Mm-hmm. and and cut contractors. Um, so uh, I, I think we've, you know, the 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 move toward employees kind of as Kleenex sheets. I think is move is more is driven by cost, short term mm. cost pressures. And and I, you know, I, I just don't know whether that's. And the assumption is that we treat them like Kleenex mm. and like like resources like. Um, uh, like you know, capital resources, and and I think the reality is that's pr- in the future that's not going to serve us well. Mm. Uh, those of us who work in big companies um, with big procurement organizations know how we treat vendors. Okay, we put, we get the thumb screws out, we put the thumb screws on them, and we squeeze them to get every last dime from them. And um, that kind of approach to treating, uh, you know human capital resources, I think, in the future uh, is not going to be effective because what you find is when you treat vendors that way, they don't help you under, you know, uh, diagnose your business. They don't help you improve your business. There's mm-hmm. nobody better to help you improve your business than somebody that, that does business with you. Um, we do that with IT contractors, you know, in a huge way. Uh, mm-hmm. We treat them terribly. They don't help us. They see problems with our processes. But because we treat them so terribly, they're not interested in helping us with our processes. I think in the future, it's going to be different. Um, in the future, you are going to be dependent on these, these people f- for your work. Um, um, they're not going to be, you're not going to be able to treat them like Kleenex. You're going to have to treat them like full partners. Mm. Um, you know, you're, because, and, and you're going to have partners that you're going to, you're, they're going to be partners. They're not going to be vendors. Uh, because they're going to be doing work that isn't trivial work anymore. They're going to be doing work that is more core for your strategy. And the reason that's going to happen is because you're not smart enough as a company. You're going to have to depend on them. You're not smart enough to, to or you can't, you can't, um, 
uh, you don't have the budget or you don't have the, mm. uh, you know, the latitude to hire all these people. So you're going to be, you know, you're going to have to admit as a company, we're not smart enough to do it on our own. We're going to need these outsiders and we're going to need their creative energies and their ideas and their insights, not just their low cost services. Um, and I think it's, you know, that's already happening in the, in the, in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. where um, when you look at lots of R and, you know, lots of pharmaceutical innovation is not coming from internal R and D labs. Mm -hmm. It's coming from outside labs where smart people are doing really interesting stuff. And we, in our job is to find it and bring it in and help them develop it. So these are, these are part, I think the partnerships are going to be critical in the future. So um, whether they're our own or, you know, inside our walls or outside our walls, we're not going to be able to treat uh, our resources like that. We're not going to get the uh, innovation and ideas from them if we do. Interesting. And I think, um, so you mentioned about stockholder value, uh, sort of, um, uh, I think it it, it was, uh, I, it reminded me of a very interesting conversation I had with one of the, so CFO of uh, uh, a recently uh, sort of a reasonably sized company and I was talking to him about uh, this value creation and sort of how uh, how much cost is uh, impacting the decision making and he gave me a very interesting example so he said Vishal you know what uh, imagine in a world where all of your customer run away would you survive I said no he said imagine if all your employees run away would you survive I said no he said, uh, imagine all the all the uh, shareholders run away. Would you survive? I said, maybe, right? So, so he said, that's that's the market perception that needs to change. That many times, many businesses rely too much and, and, and sort of too deep into sort of keeping the uh, the shareholders happy on, on the company, ignoring their workers or the clientele. And he said, eventually what will happen? And, and I think you, you pointed out that Tom Shoes and, and a lot of these companies are emerging who are now keeping sort of um, employees and their customers at the front and center and saying, okay, we'll be just loyal to these guys. We don't care about um, uh, price earning ratios. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, do, we'll do well. And, and Amazon is a great example. A lot of companies who are just showing negative returns and still surviving uh, a pretty, pretty uh, good run uh, when it comes to in, in stock market. So what's your take on that? Like what, what, what's your take uh, in, this, in this sort of new mindset of, how how it is impacting the performance and and sort of how should I, the businesses who are doing it right are are are, are how, how what's their recipe of success uh, when it comes to looking at improving the performance and motivation of the workers? Yeah, I think I mean I just think the lens it's the the lens is the problem the lens of of mm. of uh, you know of focusing on shareholder return um, and the way that gets. That way, the way that gets implemented in organizations is cost reduction um, and short-term uh, profit. Uh, you know, focused on uh, exploitation versus exploration. Mm. Um, and so, I think the market will sort out the winners and the losers in terms of exploration, the value of exploration versus exploitation. But the the um, when it comes to managing employees and the managing those activities. Um, you manage exploration activities very differently than you manage exploitation activities. And we manage the same, those activities the same way always. So it's always, we always use a short-term cost, um, extrinsic motivation, financial lens to all of our activities and, and, and organizations. Um, 
And I think that just has a cost. So what we end up with is, again, this lens of $345 billion of investment mm -hmm. money in motivation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it, it's not really looked at that way. It's, that's looked at, that budget is looked at as something that we can cut. And what you find is companies routinely underspend that budget for themselves because it gets cut. You know, and what we have is this short-term kind of shareholder financial cost mentality applied to activities and, you know, motivation that probably shouldn't be used to be thought of it, you know, with that kind of lens. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that's why I think one of the chief problems in, in the reward space is, is cause one of the, 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 the most prominent problems in the reward space is cost, cost reduction. And the reality is, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about motivation only in the reward space. Maybe we should think about it in other spaces because those budgets are going to get cut mm. and we need to realize you can motivate people without necessarily increasing those budgets. So it's changing the whole way you think about uh, what you do with that budget um, and, and other ways to motivate that don't really cost any money. Uh, and, and that's the, you know, the, the, the big paradigm, one of the big paradigm problems with, with uh, performance management is this zero sum kind of thinking that, um, you know, you got, you got a big pot of money. And if we, um, you know, if we over, we spend more here, we have to spend less here. And it's always uh, a zero sum game. And that and motivation isn't a, um, you know, isn't a, you know, isn't a zero sum game. I mean, everybody can be motivated. You don't motivate some at the cost of motivation of others. And so I think we just have to change the way we think about um, motivation and not think about it in terms of financially, but also just thinking more, um, in a more, thinking more explorationally about the activities that HR engages in rather than exploitatively. And it's not just a cost game. It's not just a short-term return game, but a long-term investment game. I think that's part of one of the most fundamental problems with HR is it all gets lumped in together. It's all a cost game. It's all, it's all an expense, not an investment. And um, we have to think of motivation more as an investment than an expense. Interesting. Um, and I want one more perspective, uh, one, one, one more of your perspective and one interesting thought. So uh, motivation is always linked to many times, number one, loyalty uh, to certain degrees and uh, the change, and the work that, that you're supposed to do. So if the work landscape itself is changing, so I think uh, I, I recent like a couple of years back, I spoke to one of the gentlemen from LinkedIn, um, and and I was we were dis discussing about this uh, research that one of the internal research, and and there was a talk about that um, I think by 2025, most of us would have 1.8 jobs. So pretty much they were pointing towards that uh, towards this gig, gig uh, economy, right? So now. Most of us are working on uh, instead of one, maybe on multiple jobs right now, or or we will eventually be. How would that landscape uh, be perceived from the performance lens? Uh, lens, like how would businesses would look at performance management when they see dealing with more contractors uh, mm -hmm. than than they are looking at it at now nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it. Um... Well, first of all, th this is absolutely happening. So, you know, we have to deal with it. So I, I think, you know, for this is one of the things for me that absolutely just, it kind of blows up your traditional way of thinking about performance management. 
So mm. how do you motivate people you don't own? Mm. And, and in the past, again, with a more short-term expense-oriented view of, of capital, of labor, in the past, you, you wouldn't worry about it. You would say, well, they're contractors. I, you know, I tr treat them like expenses in any way, and we can get rid mm. of them. In the future, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to depend, have to depend on these workers for success. Um, they're going to be more important to your success than, than just traditional expenses that you can cut. So I think you do, you, we do have to think about how do you ma quote, manage them in a performance management mm -hmm. sense? How do I motivate them? Uh, and um, John Boudreau has got a great book called Lead the Work. He's got lots of examples in there, um, like aerospace is what's, what's coming to my mind. With, with if you're in aerospace, uh, uh, you know, and if you're Boeing, mm. you have thousands of partners uh, mm. to build a, you know, a 767. And you can't, you know, those people are doing critical work for you. They have to feel like they have to share the same sense of purpose and meaning that your employees do. They have to feel the same sense of pride when they see that plane take off, they have to own that. And if you, that's the, the sense that you have to create with all these workers, gig workers, contractors, partners, that you know, whoever they are, whether you own them, you sign their paycheck or not, you have to create that sense of meaning and purpose and pride um, because you don't control their merit budget. That they work for some outside firm, you don't control that. You have to, to give up the idea that money will motivate them and you have to create meaning and you have to create, you know, belonging. They're all part of a team. You have to create a sense of we're on the seven, six, seven team, or we're on the fuselage team, or we're on the, um, the, uh, the cockpit team and create that sense of meaning and purpose and belonging, you know, feeling a part of something larger and companies, I think like Boeing, uh, you know, I think they've done that. I think they've created a sense that we're all working on the same thing, even though we don't all work for the mm -hmm. same company. And, you know, and I think what, what you'll, the gig workers, I mean, I just love this because you know, I came from a, you know, the pharmaceutical company where we, mm. we have problems that we can't solve mm. and we send them, we put them out on the web with uh, in incentive and, and let people, people just get on and crowdsource solve them. Um, and, um, you know, what you, you're, you're creating, you have to create, uh, you know, something compelling. So people you don't even know choose to help you. Um, and, you know, sure, those people are paid, but in many ways, you know, that's, 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 that's a token part of it. Um, so I, I think, you know, managing the, this kind of workforce in the future absolutely just blows up the whole idea of, of the way we manage and motivate people with performance management or rewards. You know, you don't, you don't control their rewards, so you have to think about how you get them together, how you create meaning and purpose for them, how you mm -hmm. create team objectives. You're all part of, you create teams with your partners. Um, and um, how you manage yourselves and work together over the time period of your um, of your project, which is probably not a year. So this is not an annual process anyway. Um, so I, I think it blows it all up, which I think it you know is is the stimulus we need for real innovation. I think in this area. Interesting. And now, now let's let's go to the individuals uh, who are leading this charter of so-called performance management or motivational control. Uh, uh, so what is how do you define uh, if if i if i'm an executive uh, and taking care of or figuring out the motivational index for my workers or my team or however we want i want to spend it 
what are some of the tangible steps you would recommend uh, to someone who who sort of has this charter to motivate and, and keep the keep this worker happy like what what do you suggest as some of the tactical steps i should do <laughs> well the i mean the, you know the, the the short answer is that the easy part mm. is what they should start doing the hard part is what they should mm. stop doing i mean i have no trouble mm. getting people to say what you need to do is is make this a team sport um, mm. instead of an individual sport, uh, do planning and work you to planning and, um, you know, performance management with teams, set team objectives, individual objectives in the context of team objectives, um, focus on, on progress um, and focus heavily on, on setting goals up front uh, and, and not just really, not just goal setting, but it's, it's not so much the goals that's important. It's the process mm. that's important. It's the creation of context. So I understand if I'm a partner with Boeing, I understand what we're doing. I understand the context. Mm. And you share a lot more with them than you used to. So they need to understand everything. So they understand the, the context and the meaning. They can get meaning and purpose from, from, uh, from this. And, and they also, obviously, they get goals and objectives and timelines and so on. Um, but but it's the context and the meaning that are really important. Um, mm. It's easy to get you know, executives to, to, to buy into that. What's hard for them is, is to say, oh, and by the way, you got to give up money as a motivator and you got to up, give up your variable pay and performance management systems. You got to focus so much less on identifying the 15% elites in your organization mm. and much more time identifying the 80, you know, and, and mm. using the 85% that are really solid contributors. Because, you know, the, 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 80, the 15% of your elites, in the future, it's not going to be like that. In the future, you're going to need every, you're going to need all 100%. Because in the future, you're not going to know who your elites are. Okay? If you follow, I mean, I love this book. It will, you know, we can talk about books maybe, maybe later. But um, I spent a day with a Bob Johansson from the Institute, Institute for the Future in, uh, in uh, Palo Alto wrote a book called The New Leadership Literacies. And I'm a, I am very bullish on the future. I, I used, I would, you know, everyone has a view of the future. It leads every article you read and, and they turn the article into, they turn you know, the future into a, uh, a scenario that advantages their products, okay? Hmm. So I'm generally very skeptical of talk about the future, but, um, but Bob Johansson is a real thing, um, Institute for the Future, it, the book. And when you look at that, that kind of book, um, you know, it's you, you're the, the where so organizations are kind of shape shifting and they grow from the edges and they have no center and they have no hierarchy. In a world like that, you don't know who your valuable people are. All mm. of a sudden, if you're Amazon mm. and you're and you're pursuing a, a business idea, somebody that you ha you do not have your radar that is not on your radar screen knows a lot about that. All of a sudden, they become very valuable to you, and then um, you move on, and other things become valuable. So you have these these hierarchies and these organizations, these teams, pop up. You build a hierarchy around them. You commission some work. You do a bunch of great work, and then they disappear. And then something pops up over here. These ideas. Um, so the, the point of that is, you don't know who's going to really be valuable to you, mm. and somebody that's not very valuable to you, or you don't see as valuable to you all of a sudden becomes very valuable to you and, and you won't be able to forecast it. 
So I think the idea is quit thinking about the elites, my high performers, my high potentials, because most of them are not getting there on their own anyway. Most of them are very well supported from other people. They're getting lucky. And, and there's a whole body of research on, on the talent myth and how we kind of deify these individuals. You know, we're very individualistic in these systems. And we focus heavily on the individuals that separate themselves, uh, whether they separate themselves with talent and hard work or whether they separate their se themselves with luck and a good supportive team and uh, uh, firm specific kinds of resources. So um, I, I think we're going to have to focus on, you know, the 100 percent, not the 80, not the 15 percent um, in, in the future, because I, I think we're not going to be able to see the opportunities until they're right right in front of us and then we're not going to have time to go find somebody and hire mm. them okay we're going to have people we're going to have to have people that already know about these things and they're all of a sudden they're going to become extremely relevant interesting beautifully said and uh, i think um i i want your perspective on so if if we summarize uh, whatever we have discussed so far like what are some of what are some of the big ideas here like what are some of the big big sort of uh, if opportunities uh, for anyone who want to explore and, and sort of really help shape the performance management landscape for everyone? Like what are some of the big ideas here at play? Yeah, I would say, I mean, for, like, you know, again, make no mistake. <clears throat> big idea number one is get rid of all the stuff we're doing now. That's the hard one. Stop, mm. you know, stop the ruthless kind of uh, mercenary evaluation and differentiation of people mm. um, uh, for, and, and, and distribution, uh, differentiation of rewards. So that's hard, um, and that's where all the the resistance. Uh, and the, in terms of the other big ideas, I think there are probably three or four big ideas. One is is with is and oh by the way, change the system from one that is focused on evaluation and differentiation to one that's focused on um, strategy implementation. Um, um, direct that one that you know a system that provides direction it's just this becomes a management process for executives to help align employee work with strategy and strategic goals okay so it becomes it becomes a you know a, a real management process like budgeting like long-term planning forecasting it's how mm -hmm. we decide what we spend resources on and what we don't um so that's big i think big idea number one is this doesn't serve employees anymore this serves leadership mm. and it's and it serves to drive direction and alignment to strategy uh, so this serves the business the second big idea is when you as soon as you say that what it says is goals and the process for setting objectives the first part of pm which very few companies really focus much on except to the extent that this is a contracting process Okay. The way we think about goals, the goal setting process now is it's contracting. What are the contracts? This is service level agreements for employees. What are you going to do? And what are the contingent reward contingencies that are at stake if you do it at the end of the year? In the future, it's different. Okay. It's goals and the goal setting process is the most, it's the centerpiece of, of the future of this process. It's the way you make meaning and purpose for employees. It's, and it's not so much, again, the output that's important, the goal setting, the, the goals at the end of it. This is a continuous process of, of what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Making context, creating context for employees. 
a lot more context and a lot more transparency are going to be required in the future than we are now. Mm. Employees need to know exactly everything about why we're doing what we're doing. In part because things change so fast, you're not going to be able to get everybody together and say, hey, wait a minute, time out. We're not doing this. We're doing this. People need to understand that everything about what we're doing and why we're doing it so they can adjust in the, in, on the fly in the moment. Uh, and when people understand deeply the context for their work and what we're trying to achieve, they can adjust on their own. You trust them. They understand it. Whether that's partners or suppliers or vendors, they can make these choices for the good of the business on the fly. And they're going to have to because things are going to change mm -hmm. that fast uh, in the future. So it's a big idea, I think, number two is goals and the goal setting process is, and the, is really central and it's focused on meaning making and purpose. Uh, uh, creating meaning and creating purpose for, for employees. I think that the, the third piece of this, again, this is, you know, we focus a lot on feedback and performance management. And feedback and performance management traditionally is mostly on negative, delivering messages to employees. Mm -hmm. uh, again, as if we're going to have to fire every one of our employees, you know, we, we treat them. We, we most, mostly are focused on delivering negative messages, preparing people to get low raises. Because mm -hmm. it's a zero-sum game that we get a few get high raises and a few lots get low raises. And our goal is to prepare people for low bonuses, low raises. This is a different, I mean, in, in the future, I think focus is much less on feedback and more on, again, goals and, and progress um, and mm -hmm. business performance are central. So it's not feedback that's critical. It's not feedback that motivates. It's progress that motivates. And there's lots of good research, whole, lots of research on, on uh, most of this comes out of emotion and affect in the workplace. And when you dig into that research, it, you know, it all comes back to progress. What produces positive emotions, positive affect in organizations. Oh, and by the way, the research is very clear. Positive affect drives, prog uh, drives mm. performance, drives fulfillment, drives um, satisfaction, engagement, and so on. But when you look at what drives positive effect, it's progress, progress mm -hmm. against goals. So it's progress that motivates, not feedback. Uh, so I think the, the, the other big idea is that progress is gonna, is got to be central to this. If you're a supervisor, you have a team, your job is progress. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, and that obviously that involves feedback, it involves information, but it also involves support, resources, all the other things. My job is to make sure you make progress on your work mm -hmm. every day. Because if you don't, I don't make progress. Because my progress is your progress. And which is really the last big idea is, again, and we said this, um, performance management in the future is, not a team, is a team sport, not an individual sport. Mm -hmm. um, so this happens at the team level. Uh, when we win, I win. Um, and so we do this as a team. You know, traditional performance management is very individualistic. Individuals set objectives, individuals get feedback, individuals get rated, and individuals get rewarded. And I think in the future, it's not going to be like that. Teams are going to set objectives because we're all going to need to worry about how we get this work done. Uh, teams are going to get feedback. We're going to get together as teams, troubleshoot why it's not working, figure out how to, how to get it to work, where, where do we need to go, what resources do we need. And the boss is going to be providing the support, resources, coaching, all that stuff. And then in the end, the big, I think the big change is that no in mercenary, individualistic, variable mm -hmm. pay programs. It's all 
when when we win, I win. And that's the biggest mindset shift, I think, for performance management is interesting. We go we go to much more profit sharing, gain sharing programs, team based rewards. Um, so when we win, I win. And now there there are plenty of ways to manage compensation outside of that. You know, in the future, I think you promote people more often. You don't deal with comp. People love narrow band or broad banding because administratively it's a lot easier. I think in the future we go back to narrow banding. We promote people for more often. We give them, um, we keep them whole with the market. We give them market-based pay increases. Um, we give them, uh, you know, I think even more radically, and Netflix does this, you pay the person, not the job. Hmm. In the future, the job is going to go, the job is, is, a, uh, is a meaningless construct in the future anyway. Um, work is going to happen. Tasks are going to get reconfigured. Um, we mostly focus on work now, not mm. jobs. Jobs are just, we can't be that specific about who's going to do what. Um, you know, it's going to be more like a scrum uh, in the future. So you can't pay individuals like that anyway. You pay organizationally and you, um, and you have much more organizational based incentive programs and you keep people up with the market uh, and, and promote promote them more often and pay them individually. We do this in, in, in uh, we do this now in, in, in organizations and we, even though we don't say it. So mm. you had a, you had a good year. Um, you know, p- people make excuses for what they want to, how they want to reward people anyway. We already create our own stories because I want to give you 6% this year. Um, we'll find a way to do it anyway. We already pay people individually. And in the future, we're going to have as many jobs as we have people. I mean, they literally are going to be configured and configurable like that. So we might as well start thinking about paying, paying people anyway. Um, that's, ra- that's a very radical idea for comp people right. to get their head around. Uh, and, and again, Netflix does this stuff. Netflix, I think, is mm. one of the shining stars in, in, uh, mm. in this area because, and part of it's because they designed it this way from the, few, in the, from the beginning. Um, and, and if you, again, another book, Patty McCord's book on, on Netflix, um, is fascinating because they just, they just didn't, they designed this way from the, in, from the beginning because they didn't have time. Hmm. They were moving so fast. They didn't have time to, 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 um, engineer and design all these variable pay programs and performance management programs. These are changing so fast for them. They're growing so fast. They said, we're just going to, we're just not going to do any of this stuff. And now dismantling that stuff for organizations is hard, um, but I think it's doable. I, I think we're going to have to go, you know, slowly begin to dismantle the individual um, pay infrastructure, the focus on bonuses and merit pay and, the, and go back to more merit-based or uh, market-based pay, uh, raise people's pay with market-based pay increases, cost of living increases. Um, and people hate cost of living increases because, again, they're coming from a perspective mm. of this doesn't, this is how can two or three percent, you know, motivate mm. somebody, somebody? And the answer is it never did. You were mm. not motivating people with your merit pay before. What you're doing is keeping them whole with the market because if you mm. don't do that, you're going to lose them. So the conversation you have about market based pay increases or cost of living increases is not a, is not a traditional motivation 
conversation mm. the way you would normally have it. You can still have a motivation conversation in the context of a cost of living increase, but it's different than it was in the past. So there are lots of ways you can manage pay, increase pay, keep people's pay growing and keep people excited without doing all the crazy, um, you know, variable pay programs that we have now. Interesting. And that's the hard part because yeah. when people say, when you say to an executive, and, and I have done this, uh, you say, you know what, I think we should do it. We should get rid of pay for performance. Hmm. The, you know, the look in, the, in their eye, I mean, it was, it's as if you ask them why they walk upright. Okay? It's like, well, how else would you do it? And hmm. so part of the problem is, is a classic kind of failure to see problem. They don't see an alternative. And if we can show them real alternatives that work, and oh, by the way, there's lots of research that profit sharing, gain sharing programs um, uh, work extremely well. Companies that implement those programs see, um, you know, mid to high single digit uh, productivity increases mm. without all the craziness that is associated with individual uh, variable pay programs, all the manip manipulation, distortion, all the crazy side effects that you get with those. Uh, this program. So there's lots of ways to solve these problems, but you have to get people comfortable that 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 they can do it. Interesting. Uh, beautifully put, by the way, and thank you so much for sharing that. So we're at the tail end of the conversation, and and um, I think uh, I want to spend some some time on uh, um, your uh, journey. So I think we ask all of our guests is um, so in your journey. So what are some of the qualities that is attributed to your success? what would you attribute those qualities to? Like, what would you say uh, some of the traits that has helped you stay sane and growing throughout, throughout your progression in, in, in this? Um, you know, I mean, I would say, um, I, I would say, you know, for, for me, I think you have to be, I mean, just have to be flexible. I think in the future, it's even going to be more so. So I think the, you know, I've always been fa a fairly curious guy. Um, so something new is always, you know, it was always more exciting to me, uh, even if it was a little, little frightening. So I, I think for me, being curious um, has, has helped. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other thing that, you know, is, for me is important is to be evidence-based. I mean, I, you know, mm. um, that's why I've always, uh, you know, I've always had a, had, a, had a strong kind of theoretical, empirical research orientation because, you know, for the most part, I know there's a body of research out there that has studied this, and I can depend on that, and I can feel confident. I can project more of an air, more confidence that these things will work. Um, um, if uh, you know, if I'm more evidence based versus uh, you know relying on more political skill and influence. Mm. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, um, is, and I remember, I, I still remember. Bob Quinn, who's a, at University of Michigan, uh, we, we worked with Bob Quinn long, long ago. And all of, I mean, he, you know, the, the, the advice he gave us and, and other people in HR, other leaders as well, um, that, you know, I, I, th I think I have embodied it. It has not served me. You know, it probably has not served me all that well. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but that, you know, Bob, Bob used to say, if you're not putting your career on the line every day, you're probably not doing your job. And those of us who are uh, in organizational helping roles, internal consulting roles, HR roles, talent management roles, 
um, you know, at some level we need to, to have, we have knowledge that the organization doesn't have and we need to, we need to, to push and advocate more, I think more, you know, more enthusiastically than we have in the past. Um, and, you know, some organizations are not accustomed to their HR people doing that, but I think, uh, I think when the kind of, the, you know, the, the kind of environment that we're facing now and the kind of changes that's going to force into the organization, I, I think we're going to, you know, which is why we need to be good students of what's happening mm. and the way you solve these problems organizationally is we're going to have to push because we know things the organization needs and we're going to have to push hard to get them to change. Um, and so I think we're going to have to put our, you know, you have to put your career on the line occasionally to make real change happen in organizations. Um, um, that's always, you know, it's, 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 it's caused me, it's caused me some pain and suffering, you know, as an internal guy, if you want to rule number one for change agents inside, stay alive. Okay. And when you put your career on your line, you risk not staying alive um, mm. uh, because they can buy what you offer on the outside. But, um, mm. but I think if, you know, I think you, you know, if we're going to change organizations, we have to push harder than we're pushing now. Um, and That's put our foot down. Don't be afraid to take your shoe off and pound on the table. Um, uh, I think we have to do more of that. Um, be more, less diplomatic, more, less of a concierge, and more, you know, concierge says, what do you want to do? You know, a, a good concierge will say, here's what you should do. Um, so that, that's, that's the kind of uh, role I think we need to play in the future. Interesting. And um, your favorite reads. So uh, I think one other question we ask all of our guests is, um, what are some of some of their, their favorite reads that they want to share with our listeners and viewers? Like, what would that be? Well, I mean, I, you know, to me, I think I've already, I already said a couple. One, one would be... Um, Bob Johansson's um, book on the new leadership literacies, which is 2017, I think, um, uh, put out by the Institute for the Future. Again, if you're you if you're like me, there's two things that turn me off. One is talking about is someone talking about the future mm. and telling me how it's going to advantage their services. Their you know, Institute for the Future and Bob are different than that. Second thing is any leadership list, any list of leadership characteristics turns me off. Um, in part because, you know, most of these things are, you know, I, again, one of my favorite reads is, is um, The Black Swan, Nassim Taleb. Mm, mm. And, um, you know, what, what, what you have this kind of this thing, you know, the narrative fallacy and, and uh, um, the missing, you know, missing data problem, uh, missing evidence problem that, that for the most part, you know, people study, you know, successful leaders and say, here are the things you need to do. And the reality is, did you go like go look in the, the leadership graveyard? Go look at all mm. the dead leaders. They did all the same things. Mm. Okay, so I'm very skeptical about leadership lists. So so when Bob's books, the new leadership literacies, I immediately said, This is I'm not gonna like this. Now the reality mm. is that's not what he's providing. Um, this is a picture of the future, the the dynamics and the 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 uh, kind of the vectors that are that are changing in the future and how leaders are gonna need to respond. And it's an, it's an amazing read. I mean, it's absolutely amazing read and um, very quick read, but it's very, very powerful. So th that one for sure. I also mentioned uh, Patty McCord's book on Netflix. Um, mm. it's, a, it's just a picture of somebody who did it differently. They thought differently. They act differently. And they're still very successful. Okay. Mm. So the idea is 
you can dismantle this stuff and still uh, and still be successful. Um, you need to reality test uh, and say, well, maybe my fears are not justified. Maybe all my best people won't leave if we abandon our kind of ruthless individual individualistic pay practices. Um, and we found that's not why our best people were there to begin with. And so part of it is just reality testing. So th that's a good, um, that's a great read on how you think differently about this stuff and, and, and a case for suggesting maybe we should consider it. Um, mm. the, the other read, I think anyone who works, every leader in an organization should have this book on their shelf. It should be required reading before we put you in front of any decision is um, Kahneman's book, uh, Think Fast and Slow. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that's just the, the, the Daniel Kahneman's book is just a, that's a summary of all of their, mm. all of his research uh, uh, with uh, Amos Tversky. Um, and you can read uh, Michael Lewis's book as well, um, which covers a, a lot of that. It's a little easier read. Uh, Think Fast and Slow is not written mm. in a narrative kind of fashion, but it's, it's absolutely critical. If you make decisions in organizations, you have to read it. I mean, it's all about bias um, and, and uh, um, you know, ways, you know, the, the, the things that get in the way for, you know, uh, of, of uh, good decision making, chief of which is, is, is intuition and, and, you know, and, mm. and, uh, and fast thinking. So it should be um, required um, reading. I'd say the last thing, and I mentioned this as well, one of my favorite change books, and this is a fairly old book today, um, but I just, you know, I love this book. It's by, uh, it's called um, Leading Strategic Change by um, uh, uh, Hal, I think Hal Gregerson and Stuart Black. Mm. It's like a early 2000s uh, book. And, and, and I use it, I use it a lot. And I talk about it in the book, in the book I wrote, but um uh, you know, they, they, there are three reasons why organizations and individuals fail to, fail to change. Failure, failure to see, mm. failure to move, and failure to finish. So some companies, they don't see the need to change, and they don't, they, so they don't change and they go out of business. I think um, uh, Blockbuster is, I mean, talk about Netflix. Mm. Blockbuster Video is a good example, and they just closed the mm. last door. Um, so the end of an era. Uh, Toys R Us may be another good example, um, but but Netflix or uh, Blockbuster never saw Netflix coming. I mean, at some level, mm. they, their business model was bricks and mortar, um, lay fees. That you know they suffered from a failure to see. They just didn't see the the changes in the marketplace happening. I think they also suffered from a failure to move. Once they mm. saw it, uh, Reed Hastings came in and actually presented to the uh, Blockbuster board and said, "Let us manage your online business." They were laughed out. So they once they saw the you know the things happening, they um, they failed to move. So you don't make you see the changes that you need to make, but you can't make them. Mm. And then the last is kind of failure to finish. So some people get started, they make the they make changes and they start down this path, but they lose energy, they lose momentum, and they don't finish. So yeah, the that book is a. I mean, what we suffer from in this part, especially in the, you know, talent management, HR, performance management rewards is a failure to see. Um, when you, you know, when you say to an organization, um, and, and I did this, I, mm. I, 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 the reason I wrote the book I wrote was after a conversation with someone at a regional medical center 
um, who was at a conference wanting to learn how you implement more contemporary uh, pay for performance, performance management systems. And I, I remember asking her this question. I said, do you, are you guys having trouble attracting people? Mm-hmm. No, we our, our people are, you know, we love, people love, we have a great mission-based um, system and uh, mission and people are lined up to be a part of uh, what we're creating. Do you have trouble, you know, a turnover problem? Do you have trouble holding on to people? Um, no. Um, then why on earth are you implement, are, are you wanting to implement these modern systems? And it's truly, I mean, it's truly this mm. failure to see. I mean, they don't see an alternative. And um, that's why somebody like Netflix and other companies, mostly these are small tech companies and software companies that are abandoning, abandoning commissions or abandoning ratings. Um, they're, they're doing different things. And the sky isn't falling. You know, Netflix didn't mm. lose all their people. They still attract people. Um, so, you know, it can be done. And so the, the, the Black Gregerson book is great. Uh, thinking about how you overcome each of those three problems. How do you overcome a failure to see? How do you overcome a failure to move? How do you overcome failure to finish? Okay, it's an awesome, awesome book. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now we're at, at the last but not the least. And, and by the way, thank you so much for being really generous with your time. So um, if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something uh, from this conversation, like what is what is that snappy bite that you could suggest um, listeners and viewers to, to take away from our conversation? Uh, well, I mean, I would, I probably go back to the comment, um, um, the comment I made about Bob Quinn, you know, you have to put your career on the line every day. I mean, that's at some level, um, again, I, you know, I, I think I'd said this at the beginning, hmm. this is, we're going to have to change. I mean, you know, talent management, compensation, the way we think about motivation control, which is mostly HR processes. Is going to have is going to have to change. It's going to be hard. Uh, if you want it to be, if you want easy, keep throwing money at people. Okay, but if you want effective, you're going to have to stop throwing money at people and start really engaging them with stronger motives. But the key point is that it's going to be hard. If you're not, if you want easy, throw money. If you want hard, if you want effective, it's going to be hard. Um, uh, and you're going to, you know, you're probably going to make some enemies in your organization. You're going to say things people aren't going to want to see, not going to want to hear necessarily. Uh, so it's going to be hard. It's going to be a little dangerous, but you're going to, you're going to have to do it. Um, uh, otherwise, we're going to, you know, I think companies are already making these changes. Com- progressive companies are already turning. And like anything else, you know, there, there will be kind of a, um, you know, uh, uh, a tipping point where you'll, you're going to be behind and it's going to be hard. Everyone will, you know, progressive companies will have adjusted their value proposition accordingly and you're going to be behind. And so I think, and I think that tipping point will happen very quickly and pretty soon companies will be, be behind. They'll be losing talent. They won't get the best talent. It's because they're still dealing with an old value proposition. So um, if you're going to change it early, you're going to have to push hard and put your career on the line, I think. With that, thank you so much, Alan. I think it was it was fabulous. And thank you for being really generous with your time and helping us understand the landscape of performance management 
it's very critical as as we all know the work is changing the the organization changing and giving gi- giving us a perspective uh, to our listeners and viewers on how the performance management will impact or will be impacted as with this change and what some of the leaders could do today really really helpful and you're always welcome back on the podcast to share your story wish you nothing but success and thank you so much uh, for for sharing your perspective with us yeah i'm happy to do it and and thanks for the you know provoking you know perturbing the system disrupting the system provoking the system with you know what what's happening in the future because mm. it's going to be here before we know it and we got to be ready for it beautiful thank you so much all right thank you uh, i thought i was sick of home but actually i was homesick never really knew that i would have to grow up so quick i'm so uncomfortable don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that i met once that's it and i go into the booth feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like i'm so worthless is the mic gone i don't know how to work this inside i'm breaking down i hope i'm not up on a certain